The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm Diane Ray. I'm so glad you could join me from whatever part of the world that you're in. We're spinning around here out in cyberspace live doing the show. So if you'd like to join us at some point during the hour, you can always give us a call, 816-251-3555, and join in the conversation today. So I'm very excited about my guest and what we're going to be talking about today. I just finished her book, Mary Magdalene Revealed. And today we're going to be exploring the life and teachings of a woman who's been labeled many things, a prostitute, wife, companion, disciple, Mary Magdalene. And I was so uh, excited to delve into this work. I just finished the book yesterday. And uh, just kind of to give you a a little background uh, on me, you know, when I was a kid growing up in Fort Lauderdale, I went to St. Anthony's Catholic Church. And when I was Mm -hmm. eight years old, I had my first communion. And when you participate in that ritual, you know, you learn about the persecution and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You get your first communion called the Eucharist, which is symbolically the body and blood of Christ in kind of a tasteless wafer. (laughs) Although I actually like the taste of the wafers. I don't know why. (laughs) So you learn about the disciples and the Last Supper and all of that. And uh, you can also see Jesus Christ Superstar, you know, if you want a a livelier version of that tale. So, you know, during that time, I was told about Mary Magdalene and how she was there when Christ was crucified and she was the first witness to Jesus' resurrection. And I was just fascinated to hear this whole whole story. So I asked Sister Hyacinth, who was the sister who was teaching our first communion class, you know, was Mary Jesus's girlfriend? Because this made total sense to me. (laughs) And she said, no, but he loved her the best. She just kind of patted Mm. me on the head, you know, and that was all I got. So my guest today is going to shed some light on this, on the life of Mary Magdalene and the importance of her message to the world, which is something that we haven't really heard. Megan Watterson is a feminist theologian with a Master of Theological Studies degree from Harvard Divinity School and a Master of Divinity from Union Theological Seminary at Columbia University. And her new book that we're going to be talking about today is Mary Magdalene Revealed, the first apostle, her feminist gospel, and the Christianity we haven't tried yet. And you can find her online at meganwaterson.com. And Megan, I'm so glad you could join me today to talk about this. Thank you. And thank you for that story. I love that story. <laughs> it's true. I, I asked Sister Hyacinth and, you know, she kind of just her. gave me the little, yeah, I know this is great. I, I loved the nuns <laughs> at our church, you know, and I'm really glad that I never had like a, a horrible you know, Catholic story uh, to reveal. Mm-hmm. I actually thought they were kind of magical and beautiful, and I, I yeah. love the rituals and, and all of that. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, as I was thinking back, you know, preparing for our conversation today, and after I read the book, you know, how Mary Magdalene's story was just kind of, you know, she was there, but you, you didn't really hear a whole lot about what happened. I mean, of course, the Easter story, you know, she was there at the resurrection and. Right. We were told that, you know, Jesus loved her the best. But what did that really mean? 
you know? So right. I read through the book, right. like, what's the rest of the story, you know? The book is such right. an amazing read. I mean, I was really moved um, when I finished it. And um, so just to kind of dive in, you know, you say in the beginning of the book that this is what religious scholars would call a conversion story. So yeah. what did, did you mean by that? What is a conversion story? Well, a conversion story is, you know, people profess that moment when they sort of come to Jesus, you know? In my right. case, it was more of a coming to Mary um, and understanding that actually this idea or this experience that I've had of Christ since before my mom ever even let me go to church, because um, I wasn't raised in any religion. I was really raised feminist. My mom's like a flaming feminist. And she had reservations about me joining a church, but I just couldn't shut up about, you know, I had so many questions and I was so curious and I had this experience. And what I mean by that is not something that's like cognitive or intellectual or something that I could put into words even, but I had this sense that whatever Christ was, he was about love, right? And, and like not a love that's quantifiable or definable or limited or conditional, like a love that extends to everyone and all of us. It's like love, 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 love. So then when I went to church and, you know, my, my mom finally let me go, I got there and my experience of encountering the New Testament was really intense <laughs> because, you know, here I was just a little girl with no, you know, actual experience with religion at all, formal institutionalized Christianity at all. But there was this like physical response in me. I broke out in hives and I just had this feeling like, wait, <laughs> like, wait, there's more, you know, like this is only a part of it. And it, it also freaked me out that um, God was perceived as a father and a father only, you know, that the, that the reverence and the spiritual authority seemed to only be exclusively male and masculine and this really disturbed me um and so i really based on that physical reaction you know breaking out in hives and based on that deeper intuitive knowing that my body was not lying to me you know like the body never lies like i that experience of the love even though i wasn't finding it in institutionalized religion that there was some kind of truth in it, you know, and I didn't know exactly how I would find it. But for me, when I eventually, you know, after studying all the different world religions and figuring out, okay, where did the voice of women and where did the stories and images of the divine feminine go? You know, I studied all the other religions because Christianity was in, in a way too intense for me. It was like too personal. And then finally, I was ready to go to divinity school so I could really, really understand, okay, where did she go within Christianity? How did this become really like a masculine and male-dominated idea of, you know, what it means to be Christian? Like, how did this all happen? And that's when I found Mary Magdalene's gospel and started studying it as a scholar. And for me, it converted me, or I, I felt like, simply confirmed for me what had always existed within me, you know, that, that, 
message, which is in Mary's gospel, that um, we are not sinful. The whole point of being human is to go through these, you know, these ego-identified moments, and we are not um, meant to be judged based on whether or not we're male or female. Like, the truth of who we are is the soul that exists while we're human within, you know? And so we, um, you know, we have that capacity, whether we're male or female or trans or intersex or whatever, non-binary, it does, that doesn't matter. That doesn't dictate whether or not we have the potential of speaking on behalf of the divine and having spiritual authority. That should not be the criterion for whether someone should be, you know, high up within the church is simply based on their body. Um, it should be based on the inner transformation we've gone through in order to connect to that truer aspect of us, which is the soul, which is that experience that I had as a little girl of, of that love that is love that is love. Well, the message that you reveal in the book just really answered a lot of questions for me because you know, as, as I get older, I mean, I kind of just accepted, you know, what Sister Hyacinth said. And then as I got older, that, you know, then I started having questions like why exactly what you said, you know, the questions that you had, you know, what, what happened to Mary? You know, what, why does God hate gay people? Why are they wrong? Right. You know, and, and then as I knew gay people and had gay friends growing up, I just, I couldn't accept that. Why would those people go to hell? And, you know, so all of these questions, and then I kind of went, I kind of pushed it away and said, no, you know, this, this doesn't feel right to me, even though I did feel, you know, a a love for all of like, I love the ritual, and I loved all that other stuff about it. But I didn't, there were some other things that I didn't. So then I thought, well, can I really pick and choose? I don't know, you know, and it was confusing. And so then it kind of set me on, on my, my seeking path as well. And, and your path kind of brought you to study Mary, which is so fascinating. Now, I'd like you to tell people, though, what – so we're talking about an actual uh, gospel that does exist. Yeah. And I love yeah. this story because it's something like out of Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, just the yeah, whole story of how this gospel was found. So maybe you could share just a little bit of these, what they call the, the Gnostic gospels that were found. Yeah. So it's, 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 re- it's very um... – it's very, it can be very confusing, and often Mary's Gospel is conflated as, as being a part of the Gnostic Gospels, but it actually isn't. So this is part of um, what my um, divinity degree helped me get clear. Um, for those three years, I was really focusing on the scripture that wasn't included um, in, in the formation of the canon. So the current version of the Bible that you would find, you know, in a hotel or like if you went to a church now, that was codified in the fourth century by church fathers at what was called the Council of Nicaea. Now that council decided which Christian scriptures, so there were all these different Christianities, plural, that were being practiced for hundreds of years in the wake of Christ's crucifixion. There were all these different communities that rose up and were sort of like, what the heck just right, happened? Like different Who factions was? in a sense, right? Exactly. All different, all different ideas. And 
one of those threads, um, which I like to refer to as a red one, was a community that believed Jesus had passed on secret teachings to Mary Magdalene, that she wasn't just there at the empty tomb because she happened to be at the right time, you know, happened to be at the right place at the right time. She was, she was actually meant to be there, that, that because she had the capacity to see or she had a vision, what later um, scholars refer to as uh, the spiritual eye of the heart, she had perfected this capacity to be able to perceive Christ. And so it was actually, um, you know, a part of his completion that rising and that she was there to meet him because she could actually be the one who could see him so so it it wasn't an accident it wasn't like you know um just good good timing it it was she was meant to be there because she she was the one who could see him and so it creates more of a sense of her prominence and this community had a gospel that was written in her name of course for all the gospels there's no way to verify ever who actually wrote it, you know, but but most believe that these Gospels were all oral before they were written down and then codified. So Mary's Gospel was not included in the canon um, that was created in the fourth century at the Council of Nicaea. And a couple decades after that canon was created, which is now the New Testament, there was an edict that went out to say that all these other Gospels that contradict the stories that they'd come up with, this kind of master story, which is how Harvard scholar Karen King refers to it, the master story of um, Christ and his male disciples, and giving the apostolic authority, the apostle is from the Greek apostolos, which means the one who is sent, giving apostolic authority only to males. All of the other Gospels that affirm the fact that Mary was not only an apostle, but really the first apostle, because she was the first one not only to see him, but then to have him say, go and announce this good news that I have risen to all of the other disciples. So she would have been the first apostle, but her her story and who she was was edited out. And so there was an edict that was sent out um, later, uh, but within that same fourth century, for all of those other Gospels to be um, destroyed. And fortunately, there were some industrious rebel monks that, that buried copies of Mary's Gospel in urns, either deep in the Egyptian desert, or also one of them was found in a cave. So none of um, the, the Gospel of Mary was not found among the Nag Hammadi findings. Those, those Gospels, though, also verify this reality that there were all of these different communities that had different ideas of who Christ was um, and what his teachings were about. Because a lot of the Gospels that were included in, in the Nag Hammadi findings, they talk about a Christ that wanted to turn the hierarchy, so what I mean by hierarchy is just like, you know, the structure of power that was in place within the Roman 
um, government at that time that Christ wanted to turn all of that on its head. So he didn't want to follow along that men were the ones who, and only ones who had exclusive power. Um, he, he wanted to suggest actually that we all equally have something within us that renders us, you know, a brother and sister, no matter who we are. And so those gospels um, were considered uh, heretical as well. And, and, Someone preserved them, thank, you know, heavens, and they were, dis- they were found in um, Nag Hammadi. But the Gospels of Mary, we have three um, scriptures, three Gospels that have been found, two in Greek and one in Coptic. And most likely it was the Coptic um, Christians known as Copts, um, the Egyptian Christians that, that saved and preserved her Gospel. That's such an amazing story, and I just make, it makes me think of what was really going on at that time, because you think, yeah. okay, when, when Jesus and Mary actually walked the earth, then yeah. really the Gospels as we know them, the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are really written, what, like 50 years or so after his death? Isn't that at right? At least, yes. Yeah, at least, if not yeah. more. So you can imagine, okay, if I tried to describe something from 50 years ago— things are going to be left out, you know, or, or changed. Right. And, so and, more... and even a generation would have passed, you know, given, right. given the lifespans of humans at that time. So it would have been probably not firsthand account um, or pass, you know, it was, it's, it was passed down a generation and then they began to record it. So what, what, what's fascinating is that Mary's gospel is as authentic as any of the other Gospels that were codified. And I think that that's really a significant uh, thing that impacted me when I was at Divinity School, was really taking that in. Because there was a part of me that sort of, you know, thought lighter of it because it was a quote-unquote Gnostic Gospel. I thought there was like this whole other thing that was Gnosticism, and then there was Christianity. And what I was able to get clear by working with other scholars is that I understood, no, this was actually one of the earliest, this is evidence of one of the earliest forms of Christianity. This, the, these are forms of Christianities. They're not Gnostic in terms of like, there was never a religion called Gnosticism. That doesn't exist. Like these are various ideas of Christianity. And when, when that began to sink in, I, I began to see, wait a second, why has this never been taken seriously? What, why has this, here it was published in 1955, it was found in the late 1800s. Why, why have we not integrated the significance and the importance of Mary's gospel? Other than the evidence, you know, the evident, which would be, you know, we aren't ready to accept an idea of Christ where everything is that radically equal, <laughs> you know, where he was giving secret teachings to a woman, because it would really transform a lot of our current uh, forms of Christianity that, that says, you know, that has more of these ideas of who you have to be in order to call yourself a Christian, you know, and right. especially who you have to be in order to preach, it just made me think of, you know, if you're if you're trying to imagine going back in a time machine and, and there's this pope 
who's looking at this information and then says, makes this decision, well, we're taking that out. <laughs> you know, I'm, right. I'm editing this. Right. This is not what I believe it to be. How can a woman, a lowly woman, be, you know, sitting at, you know, the right, exactly. the right hand of the father, as they would say. Right. So I can exactly. imagine that that information was just so unbelievable at the time that right. they had to just, right. uh, you know, cover it up. Absolutely. And so now Absolutely. we're able to read it. And, it, and it's so fascinating. And, you know, I really didn't understand when you talk about Gnostic, you know, I'm like, well, what does that really mean? You know, what, is, what does Gnosticism really mean? And so the way I understood it is that Gnosticism says that humans are divine souls trapped in the ordinary physical or material world, right? So we're, what they've, what they've always said, you know, we're, we're divine souls just kind of wearing these meat suits, you know, walking around as, as humans to experience this, this on earth, yeah. right? Yes. At, at, at its, you know, most primary principle, the unifying thread of, of any gospel or any teaching really that is referred to as Gnostic is, is one that says we can know ultimate truths within us. Like to know thyself thy true self is actually to know god so it's this idea that that we contain an aspect of the divine it it isn't based on an idea that we are lowly you know and we are completely separate from what might be god or what might be an angel or what might be heaven that actually all these things that we're seeing as separate or or above us or other than us is actually something that we can experience now within us. It, but that takes, you know, that takes practice. And the various different forms of this gnosis, you know, Greek for knowing, um, they, they have different ideas of, of the universe and how it works or, or how we are incarnated and different stories. Um, but at root, that's, that is what unifies an idea of, of Gnosticism is this um, capacity that we're not just human. We are also a soul. We're both. Right. And this would, this would get you burned though, uh, you know, a few centuries ago, <laughs> if you dared to compare yourself as, you know, on that level or equal or God within you, that would certainly get you tied to a stake. So how did how did we lose that right over those hundreds of years that original beautiful idea? Although it also seemed to kind of translate to some Eastern philosophies, where I think it's called Advaita Vedanta says kind of a similar right, thing, unitive. right? Yeah, yeah. So a, which, a which is such a beautiful idea. message, and then all of this kind of gets you know swept away or dissected and and changed over the well, over the were, course of as centuries. As you were saying about when the 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 Bible was codified in the fourth century, you know, if we can imagine and have compassion on that structure, the, the Roman stri structure hierarchy was very embedded. Uh, you know, the emperor, it, it, was, it was punishable by death to suggest that, the, that there was someone above the emperor, even God. The emperor really was God. The emperor held that position. And so 
the the reason why Christianity was, you know, it was illegal until Constantine took Christianity on as its state religion, which is when the Bible was codified in the fourth century. Before that, um, you know, stories like, which I include, of Thecla and Perpetua, these early female spiritual leaders in the church, the reason why they would be, you know, they were put into the arena and were sentenced to death is because they were challenging that structure, which was so threatening to challenge that structure and say that there is someone above the emperor, um, God, and to say that this God also exists within us and makes us all equal. Because how do you run a society which functions solely based on that hierarchy, right? That there's, there's a ruler at the top and then there are slaves at the bottom. And what these early forms of Christianity was saying is that Christ was like, this isn't real. I'm going to make the first last and the last first. Actually, this slave is as important as the emperor. It was absolute. Because then that would be, or the fear would be that, 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 that there's anarchy. There, there can't be any rule. You know, because right. how can you control a people if you're saying that the ultimate power exists within you? Right. right? If the they think they're gods, above you, <laughs> they're you. not going to build and those you... pyramids or, or whatever else you're trying to get them to do, you know? Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it, it, they're not going to do it, that it, heavy labor and that hard right, work. Right. Right. So you can't use fear and power over anymore. The paradigm shift, the real freedom Christ was offering was a power with, was a power with. And we, you know, are only beginning to see evidence, you know, of that, of what that looks like, of when the highest joins with the, what's considered the lowest, you know, and, and moves a power with, you know, to lift people up and understands that, that love is the ultimate, you know, resource between us all. And, you know, that we're all worthy of it innately, not because we've earned it, you know, not because of we were born into it or we deserve it. It's simply because it's innate. Right. It's, it's part of us as, as humans. I love that. And I love, you know, I had never heard of that story of the acts of Paul and Thecla. Of course I had, heard of Paul, you know, as a major figure in the Bible yeah. and his conversion story and all of that, but somehow they forgot about uh, Thecla, this other, this other major uh, part of the story. We're going to dig in a little bit deeper when we come back with Megan Watterson and her amazing new book, Mary Magdalene Revealed. I'm Diane Ray. Thanks for joining me. And we'll be right back in just a few. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. If you've been inspired by the programming on Unity Online Radio, we hope you will give your support so others may be inspired too. This online radio network depends on the support of listeners like you to continue operating and expand its outreach. Go to unityonlineradio.org and click on Donate today.
Here's a Unity Wisdom Moment with Cheryl Richardson, taken from a live lecture at a Celebrate Your Life event in 2008. You know, I was willing to show up and do the work. You know, I got myself, I had a job so that I could pay my bills while I was developing this business. And as my business got better and better, I was able to let go to go from full-time work to part-time work and then eventually to some, you know, temporary freelance work until I had enough security under my belt to stick with the business and then things just went to a whole other level. These are the kinds of things that happen when we finally make a decision to honor our soul. Now, does it mean that life's going to be rosy and everything's going to be easy? Of course not. We are here on planet Earth to evolve our consciousness, right? To consciously evolve, to become more conscious human beings. And the way that happens oftentimes is through the challenges that we're faced with. Setbacks become these stepping stones that lead us to the next stage of our life if we stay awake and stay open and stay committed to extreme self-care. To find an event near you, visit CelebrateYourLife.com. Sometimes you might feel so alone with your problems, you don't know where to turn. We invite you to call Silent Unity, the 24-7 prayer ministry where someone is waiting to pray with you every day at any hour. Listen and relax as you hear their beautiful words affirm the highest and best outcome for you and those you love. No matter what's going on in your life, Silent Unity is always standing by. Call today, 816-969-2000. Time is running out on the early bird discount to travel with Unity to Rome and the Amalfi Coast next spring. You'll tour the countryside with guides to the history, the food, the Vatican, and of course, the Sistine Chapel. Explore charming villages and maybe enjoy some Italian wine. Space is limited for the tour group and it's filling fast. Register by September 15th for the discount. Go to unity.org slash Rome 2020. Do you dread going to work every day and just pray for Friday? Get a fresh perspective on your career with Mo Fall and bring your soul to work every Thursday at 11 a.m. Central, 12 p.m. Eastern, here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. A leadership mentor and career coach, Mo can help you go from underpaid, unsatisfied, and unappreciated to loving your life and career again. Join the show and let Mo guide you to make some real life changes. Tune in every Thursday here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Be Present, the Diane Ray Show. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Diane Ray, and today I'm talking with Megan Watterson about her new book, Mary Magdalene Revealed. The stories that you haven't heard, uh, just I'm loving it. Just finished the book yesterday, and if you're interested in in spirituality, world religions, uh, definitely pick this up. It's going to answer a lot of questions for you. So we were talking about Mary Magdalene's gospel and how it was discovered, and why we haven't heard about. Uh, her message and, and some of this information over the years, just really fascinating stuff. And so I want to kind of dive into what we're traditionally told about Mary and who she is and that story of the belief that Mary was a, pro- was a prostitute. You know, we've always heard about this, mm. the, penitent, the penitent prostitute, you know, and this has stuck around for centuries, you know, even though there's yeah. evidence in the gospels that she isn't and wasn't a prostitute, so right. why, you know, why was this so important to change the story to where now she's a prostitute, which she was really, you know, Jesus' first apostle? 
Well, so the as we were talking about in terms of um, that very crucial Council of Nicaea that happened in the fourth century when the New Testament was codified and the sort of master story was created about Christ, that was attended by only males. And and the idea was that as as we were talking about to make um, this this persecuted radical cult of Christianity, you know, um, a little bit more uh, manageable within the Roman hierarchy because Constantine was acquiring this radical religion as the state religion was making Constantine was going to make it, you know, global. (laughs) Constantine wanted it to be a bit more reflective of the structures of power that were already in place. So there was an agenda, right, behind the the codification, what was included and what wasn't included. So by the sixth century, see, if women weren't going to be allowed to be a part of the highest, you know, aspects of the church, if it was going to be exclusively male, then the woman who held the central, you know, role of of being able to see the resurrected Christ as being the first person that needed to be downplayed. And and her spiritual authority, which of course that moment uh just relates. I mean, just in that it happened. Of course, he rose to of course that speaks of an aspect of spiritual authority even if you didn't read her gospel. It would speak of some form of anointing or transmission or spiritual authority that he is giving to her or participating in with her by simply the fact that she was the first witness. So, and the first to tell the good news that he had risen. So if they were going to be able to um, institutionalize an exclusively male church, then this woman who's central in Christ's life needed to be, um, she needed to be tamed. You know, she needed to be understood her rather than focusing on her spiritual nature and her spiritual teachings, i.e. her gospel, um, the, the redirection, the, the retelling of her story became about her sexuality. So in the sixth century, Pope Gregory told a homily, it was homily 33, and it set the precedent that the faithful would refer to Mary Magdalene as the penitent whore. In his homily, he did some really sloppy theological scholarship and, and conflated different passages within the Bible and then set, well, the, the you know, codified version that was created and said that this meant, um, you know, especially the, the message of the seven demons, you know, the woman who Christ expelled the seven demons from, his his exegesis or interpretation of that scripture was that if she had seven demons, that must have meant she was a prostitute. Like seven demons, and because it was a woman, to him, translated as, oh, she must have been a po- prostitute. There is nothing anywhere, anywhere that suggests Miriam of Magdala was a prostitute. There's There's actually evidence of the opposite. And what ended up happening was, about 450 years ago, there there were several um, 
uh, ecumenical gatherings where it was determined by scholars that, that this was Pope Gregory, you know, had created a fiction, you know, that this isn't true. It's simply not true. And it's not verifiable in scripture. And it's, it's, you know, not the truth of who Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene was. So scholars figured this out 450 years ago. The Catholic Church has formally apologized in 1969 for Pope Gregory's misogyny and for his misunderstanding, you know, his misleading depiction of Mary Magdalene as the penitent prostitute. Um, but of course, you know, it's that's been in people's collective imagination for so long. Um, even even Pope Francis' recent um, sort of restoration or rehabilitation is what the, the Catholic Church referred to it as, of Mary Magdalene um, no longer, he, he decreed that she is no longer to be referred to as the penitent prostitute. It was actually as I started writing this book. And the faithful now are, are meant to refer to her as the apostle to the apostles. Um, so, so that's significant. And that I, I find that really positive and hopeful. And at the same time, she's still not considered an apostle herself. <laughs> so it's, um, it's a step in the right direction. And I think it's, it's powerful and important that she's been officially renamed. Um, and that more and more people are beginning to ask this question, who was she? Who was she really? Or who is she to me? Which I think is also really powerful and important. You know, what? Who does she represent to me? Um, I think it's. I've had this conversation with so many women at different points where, you know, they they feel this sense of to you know not think of her as the penitent prostitute is to somehow you know say that there's something wrong with being sexual or there's something wrong with prostitution or sex workers sex workers and it has absolutely nothing to do with that and the sacredness of the body. This is simply about exposing the truth behind the agenda of why why she was retold as the prostitute rather than as the woman who received secret teachings from Christ, secret teachings that were actually meant for all of us. Right. And I think that it really... I mean, she definitely needs a big major remarketing campaign, <laughs> which you're definitely with you, which is what you're doing with the book for sure. But if you think about it, doesn't it kind of uh, it, it bolsters the idea of the fact that Christ, you know, ministered to the the least of us, right? The lepers, the, the exactly. prostitutes, you know, and, exactly. and it reinforces that belief of you know, well, he forgave this prostitute, you know, he can forgive you uh, of your sins, you know. So I think it just kind of plays into that whole story rather than, you know, wow, look at this, this woman who was, you know, teaching as his equal, someone that he loved the best. And, you know, even describing him kissing her, you know, on the mouth in, um, yeah, in the other, the other gospel, I think it was Philip. Yeah. Yeah. And, Oh, God forbid, you know, right? <laughs> if if Jesus was a real man in every sense of the word, that causes right. discomfort to a lot of people as well. But right. But Which I always is, thought, you know, how can so he understand man? So isn't it? <laughs> yeah, because it's that really that wasn't um the whole idea of asceticism and that the body is sinful, it didn't happen for hundreds of years until after 
uh, you know, Christ was embodied. So that that whole idea, again, goes into the idea of monasticism and exclusive male power when it comes to spiritual authority. Um, so it, it really, it, it isn't, um, it, it's not something that would have made sense to um, people at that time if Christ wasn't a full human. The whole point was to be fully human and fully divine. There, the, the point is to experience it all and to be present to it, but to not forget the soul. So it, that whole idea that he was, you know, never sexual, um, never sinned, um, it, it, it doesn't translate. It, it, doesn't make, it doesn't make sense. I, I understand that it's a part of traditional Catholicism, but that was only instituted hundreds of years after he was present. Well, and a big message in her gospel that, that you share in the book is that Jesus told her, you know, there is no such thing as sin. And, right. and sin seems to be kind right. of a main tenet in, in Christianity. You know, well, we have to accept that we are sinners because then we have to right. ask for forgiveness. So that's right. kind of a contradiction, right. right? Yes. The idea of original sin um, came so much later and and also had a clear agenda. Um, and But the the idea in Mary's gospel is, is that um, sin is created simply when we're not innately sinful. We're innately good. We are good. And God is not referred to as the father or the mother. God is referred to simply as the good, capital G. And that aspect of the good is within us. You know, that's the aspect of the soul that we can perceive in this lifetime within the heart. And then that the, the way that we quote-unquote sin is when we forget that we are also a soul. We act from the ego and completely forget that we are also a soul. So, you know, those we all have them, those like the blind rage or, you know, the, the green-eyed monster of en- envy or, or just the absolute ignorance, doing something out of complete ignorance. We've all done it. Um, and that, that is what generates, we're not innately sinful. We don't come in, you know, and a human being is not sinful. That's not our nature. Our nature is good. We are innately good. But we, when we forget that we're also a soul, we, we act at times only from the ego, you know, from this individual self that feels threatened or fearful or, you know, feels more important than other people. That that is what we need to look out for and to be able to bring love to those moments and return again to the reality of the soul. I love that message in, in Mary's gospel. And it's actually a lot of what she says really kind of dovetails with a lot of the, the unity beliefs uh, that they believe in the, the five principles, you know, God is absolute good, human beings have a spark of divinity. And we seem to have a hard time accepting this. And the other thing I, I thought that was really great that you mentioned in, in the book, one of Mary's teachings is that, look, if you look around us, you know, people spend a lot of time trying not to feel anything. You know, we're trying to numb the right. pain. We, we don't want to right. feel it. We want to be comfortable and just kind of sail along in life. <laughs> and Mary's gospel says, look, you're supposed to feel the pain. You're supposed to learn from right. it. It isn't a failure to feel human. And we right. just, we exactly. shove that down. We don't want to feel it. But I think we need right. to, to learn and grow and 
And is that so in really like to kind of encapsulate, you know, we're going through this pain, this the suffering to learn, you know, to grow to what become more understanding of of the fact that we are a divine soul? Like, is that the is that the rub? Like, is that is that what we're fighting against that we don't want to accept that? Or what, what do you think? Well, I think you bring up such a crucial and I'm so glad you did point that the whole the whole experiment here is to be human. It's that's the whole point. It's not the failure that to, to go actually feel the rage or to feel the grief, you know, that's the whole point. We don't want to sublimate it. We don't want to try to, you know, just bypass it and be quote unquote above it. We want to be human. The difference is we don't want to act from that rage. We don't want to act from that grief, right? We don't want to in, like put that anger or, or heartbreak onto somebody else. What we want to do is really need it and go inward and really experience it, but then transmute it. Um, and what I mean by that word is actually allow the experience to happen and pass through us because nothing lasts. It's, it's not permanent. It will move if, if we can be present to it. And then the idea, one of the ancient Christian practices was something called self-emptying love. And this practice of self-emptying love is, so you really go into whatever is, you know, we've all had those nights, you know, when we're obsessing about like some comment we made to someone or some comment someone made of us and it was like super unkind or, or it was like the very thing we thought we think about ourselves, you know, like the worst thing we think about ourselves. So we're obsessing about it. And, you know, we keep going into that sense of depression or darkness or, you know, feeling horrible about ourselves. And in that moment, that's when, that's when the real work can be done. So rather than watching TV to numb it out or drinking something or having sex or, you know, from that place of, you know, in order not to experience it and to not be present to it. This is when we have the choice to actually bring love to it. So we, we, what we can do is we can really feel it and we can really be in it, but not identify with it, right? We, we can understand oh, that's the this trick. is an aspect of what it means to be human. This is a part of me, but this is not the truth of who I am. This is an experience I can bring love to now right? This isn't my true self. Like, I'm not always going to be angry. Therefore, this is not the eternal aspect of who I am. Therefore, I can really be present to this. I am courageous and strong enough to really feel this envy or rage or heartbreak and then literally let it go. So if it's something somebody else said to you, you can literally get to this place within your ego where you see that it is your ego, and that actually nothing real is going to be threatened in this moment, even though everything in our system was telling us it was. And we can empty. We can just let it go because it's not actually real. And then what I experience is a sense of just overflowing again, you know, flooding as if from within with love. Oh, that's, that's such an amazing lesson. I love that. And we have one call here. We've got about 10 minutes left of the show. And I, I'm going to jump to her and see what her question is, um, bring Heather into the conversation. So let me grab her online too. Heather, welcome to the show. Hi, Diane. And hi, Megan. 
Hi. I am so How are grateful you? for your book and your timing and just listening today has been profoundly helpful. I so appreciate it. I just can't say thank you enough. Thank you. Well, I've only well, I made you... it through the first. I just got the book yesterday, so I um, was really. Uh, I think I read the introduction part three times yesterday, <laughs> um, <laughs> and which kind of leads me to my question about the signs and um, how we see the world. And so, I guess from the experiences I've been having recently, it was like just a blessing. I've been walking around going, am I crazy because I think I see a sign and everything? Like all of these things are happening. My father just recently passed away and I was so fortunate to be able to make it back to Florida across that hurricane, Diane. I had to go from Texas, you know, that hurricane that was in the Gulf. Oh yeah. I heard about that. Um, which was terrifying. Diane's from Florida, so she knows, like, about hurricanes. But anyway, um, <laughs> I did get there, and I the sacredness of being there, when he passed, he waited for me. I know he did. And the words you said, Megan, about being there at that moment, oh, my gosh, just such an unbelievable honor. But the question I had for you goes back to the book about these signs. Like, am I crazy that I, I see these signs? And I want to continue reading the book, but I wonder what your thought is on all of that, this other vision that you wrote about, the vision of the heart. So the uh, Hesychists, who were the ones, I think, most likely to preserve the gospel of Mary, they, they, had, they came up this, with this Greek word, the new, N-O-U-S, and that's translated as the eye of the heart. And the idea is that we have this capacity of being able to see inwardly. And the soul communicates with us in many different ways. Um, over the 15 years or so that I've been teaching the soul voice meditation, what I've found is that the more and more we go inward and we meet with this spiritual eye of the heart, the more we find ourselves in dialogue with something that is more than us. So those, those messages you know, that we receive, which are really meant for us and are meant for us to translate. Like, I don't think anybody else outside of us can really understand. Um, and that can be the aspect, you know, you, you said it makes you feel crazy, but it's really just a validating of what you already know. It's like an external, uh, an external affirmation of something that you actually know inside of you. And what I've noticed over the years is that it increases in proportion to the amount that we actually go inward. And it's what Jung, uh, Carl Jung, the Swiss psychiatrist, would refer to as synchronicity. And he noticed in his own experiments um, with going inward uh, that they would increase. So the more and more we encounter our own uh, soul or truth or however you want to describe it, divine spark, um, as unity would refer to it, um, the more we do that, the, the, the deeper the relationship and, and the more frequent and the more consistent those signs, especially around heightened moments, you know, of mm-hmm. transition, births and death. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is so wonderful. Thank you for that. And, the, and I, I appreciate what you said there, that it, sometimes it's only for us. And I know that um, I have 
uh, Diane was talking about, what was it, Sister Hyacinth? And I'm kind of like... Sister Hyacinth, uh, yeah. (laughs) Right, and I'm her Heather friend. I'm like a gardener. I'm out in nature. That's what I do for a living. And so, of course, you know, butterflies and sunsets and occasionally with my dad sky riding in the sky with little biplanes, all these things, it would all be outside, right? You know, for me, those messages would be found there that they may not translate to others or they might, you know, I don't know, but, but it, it was so impactful, Megan. And honestly, I don't, I, I came in touch with your work years ago and then to see that pop up, Again, I was like, I'm going to get the book. She's going to be on Diet Show. I was like so thrilled that you were talking exactly about what I kind of needed to hear. So I'm profoundly beautiful, Megan. Thank you. Beautiful. It's an affirmation you're listening. I and thanks for calling. That's my job. You know, my job (laughs) is to like observe and like look at flowers and trees and what do you need and. And listen, I have to look and listen in a different way. And so that's just what I well, do. You are. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you and so much. And keep getting those I'm messages. So excited to talk to you. And thanks for for sharing that. And, and I think that the more you open up and go within, those messages are going to keep coming louder and louder and, and more frequent. And keep posting that. I, I loved what you posted of the message that you just received. Oh my gosh! So keep on doing it. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. It's really fun. It's really fun. Thank you both so much. I so appreciate both of you. That's awesome. Oh, what a great story! I'm so glad that that she was able to share that. And a lot of what what you talk about in in the book, where Mary is telling us, you know, go within to that new N O U S, and and really listen and get quiet. So then I have to ask you, you know, how, how is your meditation practice these days? Because I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm, well, I'm working on it. The, what? I said, I'm, I'm working on it. Like I, I try to practice and get quiet <laughs> as much as I can. And actually yesterday when I really wanted to finish the book, I, I took a drive down the street to my favorite little park and, and kind of sat there to get quiet, you know. So I think it's important. We're not, we're not quiet enough. We don't listen to those voices. And, and like Heather was saying in her call, like we discount that. I think we're missing so yeah, much, and, right? And, you know, I think we we have a tendency to imagine that in order to be a meditator, you know, or or to start meditating, we have to go on like a two-week silent meditation retreat in the mountains, right. you know, or, <laughs> um, and, and I think what is so powerful about um, Mary's gospel is that this is what we can do at any point at any moment all throughout the day no matter what, you know, it's, it's something that doesn't have to have incense and beads and whatever. No one even needs to know we're doing it. We just drop it. We don't even have to close our eyes. It's, it's about setting that intention to go inward and to meet with what's really true and to really ask ourselves rather than everybody else around us to ask ourselves, what do we actually want in this moment? Or what do we know in this moment? Or what do we need to know in this moment? And what I've found is that anything I seek inwardly, I find. A, a question I ask in my heart is always answered. It's not always the answer I want to hear. Um, and it doesn't always arrive right then in that, in that moment of meditation. It's sometimes I have to live into the answer. But what I have found is that the more I do it, the more I crave it. You know, and it's something like once I freed myself of this 
you know, sort of idea that I needed to be confined and like, you know, I'm, I'm a single mom and, and working and, you know, there's so much that goes on all throughout my day. When I started realizing like, oh, right now, standing in line at the grocery store, I can connect, right. I can drop in work, you know, and, and just really be present. The idea isn't so much to look like some revered, you know, guru or, or monk or saint. You know, the idea is actually being present in our lives. Like actually, actually not being elsewhere, which is one of, the, one of the most beautiful aspects about my research was coming across the Aramaic term for death, which is simply existing elsewhere. That's what it means. And so it, it opened up for me this whole level of understanding so many of us actually are never really alive <laughs> before right. we die. It's, because we are it's such a strong about the past or worrying about the future. That's it's such a strong answer. message. And I'm so sorry we're running out of time. <laughs> we have to have you back because this is such a fascinating topic. Thank you so much, I Megan. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Farber, and I'm an author, teacher, psychotherapist, and shamanic practitioner. On my podcast, Healing for Your Soul, I welcome some amazing guests and introduce you to some healing techniques like earth magic, working with nature and animals, and really getting to the heart of what is keeping you stuck. I want to help you deepen your spirituality and let go of blocks that are holding you back. Let me help you in this journey called life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode.